0: is there a difference between having trauma and going through a difficult experience
1: i was sexually abused just to give context that by my dad so it was intrafamilial he went to prison my mum stayed with my dad and so up until the age of 37 i had a relationship with them because my mum wanted to keep the family together but really she wanted to cover it up i was being bullied by boys at school that were just horrible to me they would they would walk past and you know You smell of sex, it was horrible. Now people hear that and they say, oh mine isn't as bad as yours. So I go, oh, what, what what makes you think that? Because actually I feel, as I sit here today, fully healed, resilient, powerful, happy, joyful, all of those things. But there's something going on for you which you consider to be less but you're in a lot of pain and I'm not. The brain literally will only do its best work when it's in survival mode. You do have to go into the dark place to come back up. How you identify that what you're going through is a traumatic experience.
0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Millennial Mind. Just as a trigger warning, in this episode, we do talk around sexual abuse, rape, and suicide. This is a very heavy episode and we focus specifically on trauma throughout. This is an episode that was incredibly eye-opening and Ella has extreme compassion to share with you all the different stages of her life. This is one of the most important episodes that I've done and one that I have learned so much from. I know it's a difficult one, but please stay with me as I'm sure it will help so many people to recognise different patterns and behaviours that they could perhaps help other people with. I'd be really grateful if you could like and subscribe, and please let me know if you have any feedback in the comments about how we could change or improve this episode. Thank you so much. Let's get into it. Ella. Hello. Welcome to Millennial Mind.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Very excited to have this conversation. I feel like it's going to heal a lot of things that a lot of people are thinking. So we're going to talk about trauma today because I read a stat that 50 to 70% of people will experience trauma in their life. Mm. Is that true?
1: Interestingly, I always go against that statistic because throughout my work, people will come to me. And they'll say, I haven't had a trauma or anything like that. And they start to open up. And within about 15 minutes, my mind goes, hmm, it's interesting that you don't think you've got a trauma. And it turns out they do, but it's not necessarily the event. It's how their brain's adapted to certain events. And it's created that trauma brain adaption. Right. So in terms of trauma, I think almost everybody experiences some form of trauma, whether that be abuse, abandonment, neglect, or... It could even just be a sense of not fitting in for whatever reason, and that can be very traumatic in the way it manifests for the person. But what's the definition of trauma? Well, the definition of trauma, if you're looking at clinical definitions, are probably outdated. So it it used to be, I mean, I use EMDR as part of my multi-model approach, and it used to be very much like that very acute traumatic event. We now look at complex PTSD, and that differs for everybody because it is the... It's all dependent on the person. And and certain things like epigenetics, so, you know, ancestral DNA, Mm. what you're born with, how you think, how you're taught to think, all of those things can create the differences in the way that people respond to certain events. So I think it's almost impossible to talk about trauma as a definition. In my opinion, that is just an opinion. How interesting, because...
0: One thing I have noticed is a lot of people are throwing around that word. Mm. And I guess what you're saying is everyone does face it. But is there a difference between having trauma
1: and going through a difficult experience? I think there is. However, this is so difficult to answer straight because if, say, for example, um, a child Mm -hmm. is abused really quite badly from the age of, let's say, 13 to 17, the brain has adapted differently at that point in their life to say before the age of seven. So, before the age of seven, there's no fusion at the front of the brain. So, the prefrontal cortex hasn't quite fused yet and it starts to fuse from seven, usually generally up until 21, but it can be 25, sometimes even 30, depending on various factors. So, at that point, there's no filter in the brain, everything goes in unfiltered. Now, that's important because that's fundamental in terms of how you'll see yourself in the world around you. That's not to say if you're abused, say, from 13 to 17, that it's not awful, because of course it is. But the brain responds slightly differently because there's more complex thinking. In addition to that, it depends on things like the adults around you that support you with neglect, abuse or, or bullying or things like that. If you have a safe person and they're consistently safe, the way you respond to the event is different to if there's no safe person holding space. And I think that's the most important thing, is safe space. And that means being heard and being seen and being supported. So the event itself then becomes less relevant than the brain, the adaption, the support. And so when people talk about trauma and you think, "Mm, is that trauma? It depends on the circumstances. It's so holistic Mm. and it's almost impossible therefore to define now some people would look much more at the clinical and the medical but in my experience if someone and this is true if someone's had a perfect life or what perceive what we perceive to be perfect and then something small goes wrong to them they've got no coping mechanism they've got no ability to deal with that they've got no resilience so the other person who's perhaps had several events that have been you know difficult <clears throat> even painful they have got the skills. They have got the tools. So it, there's so many factors that it's a really, really difficult one to define. And is
0: trauma the same for every person. Because what I could define as traumatic, like you just said, cannot yeah. be traumatic to another person. Yes. Because let's say I'm a bit sensitive. Yeah. And I haven't perhaps been through you know, any difficulty in my life. Mm-hmm. And then something as small as you know someone dying... happens to me yeah I could say that was traumatic yeah so
1: is it subjective it really is I talk about this a lot because my own history um I'm very open about my own history so if I get a new client they might have seen on Instagram or read my book or caught me somewhere YouTube whatever or even on something like this and they'll say I was sexually abused just to give context that by my dad so it was intrafamilial he went to prison my mum stayed with my dad um And so up until the age of 37, I had a relationship with them because my mum wanted to keep the family together. But really, she wanted to cover it up. She's a bit of an ostrich. Now, people hear that and they say, oh, mine isn't as bad as yours. Okay. so I go, oh, what what kind of what makes you think that? Because actually, I feel as I sit here today fully healed, resilient, powerful, happy, joyful, all of those things. But there's something going on for you which you consider to be less, but you're in a lot of pain and I'm not. Now, part of that is that I've done some work, but part of that is the way I generally cope with things. Part of that is the way my brain structure copes. And that there's so many different factors as to why I am the way I am now. It wasn't always that way. Mm -hmm. But therefore, yes, I've done the work, but some people do the work and never get there. So you see, there must be something in the epigenetics, which for those that don't know epigenetics, epigenetics is the field of ancestral DNA. So the traumas that your grandparents go through or your great grandparents, how the genetic expression changes through the family. So some of it is not within our control. Some of it's not within our control.
0: No way. Yeah.
1: If we look at Holocaust survivors is a a really strong one. They did loads of studies on this and they looked at their grandchildren and compared it with those that hadn't been through what they considered to be trauma. So the grandparents and their grandchildren turned out that the Holocaust survivors' grandchildren had higher incidences of anxiety and stress disorders. So you could see that the genetic expression changes if there's been... Yeah, so it's really... All of those things play a part, you see. And the more we know about neuroscience... Just think, 60 years ago, we didn't even know about neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to remould itself, rewire and recircuit. So we know that if if we think of trauma now as this event and this behavior and this response in 60 years we'll think of it completely differently so i'm kind of sitting in the middle of where we're at right now i can see the future and i know what the clinical definitions would say but working i mean i've been in this field for 20 years as a psychotherapist it's impossible for me to say trauma is in this box it just doesn't fit like that Although I do understand when people see the word trauma, they're probably a little bit lost, which is why you're asking the question, you know, if someone breaks a nail, is that really a trauma? Yes. But it's it's what that means to that person. I mean, that's a silly example, but you see why I use it. Because it can get a bit silly from, from this opinion, that opinion. Well, that's no big deal. But it is to that person. What if they're a perfectionist? What if they've got OCD? What if the OCD is deeper rooted and their behaviour is actually a response to something that could be more genetic. It could be more based on how they've been spoken to as a child. Mm. So many different factors.
0: So is there a distinguishment between pain and trauma? Because something can cause you pain doesn't mean it's traumatic.
1: Yeah. So, for example, I broke my leg in three places when I was a kid. I was, you know, sort of unable to do anything for about a year. But that, I wouldn't say, caused me a trauma. It was an inconvenience. Okay. Um... And I didn't like it because I could see people walking around freely and I couldn't join in, you know, and it was mm-hmm. it was difficult. I couldn't have a bath and all those things that are really annoying. But I think my brain obviously didn't adapt to that as a trauma. Whereas if you feel afraid of something, if you feel that your safety is compromised, and that could be psychological safety, emotional safety, physical safety, if those things are compromised, your brain will adapt to protect you because the brain's only job is to keep you alive. So if it feels like it needs to protect you from something, that's when I think we see more of a trauma response. Okay. So it depends on your perception. And if you think about perception... It's different for every single person. We all look through our own lenses. We all have a completely different lens. Mm -hmm. And it's only when we become the observer of self that we realize that the lens we've been looking through might be maladaptive, but it will have adapted to the incidents. And it's really about safety when it comes to trauma
0: perception is reality yes it is every single person on the planet yeah whatever you perceive something to be yeah will be your reality yes so i was driving earlier today and i thought that there was something wrong with my car and someone opposite me flashed at me and i thought there's definitely something wrong with my car because that person flashed at me and then instantly i thought well yesterday i by accidentally pressed the flash button instead of indicating so maybe they weren't so which one is the reality yeah is there something wrong with my car or is there not? Yes. But it's interesting that sometimes we, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah. And whatever you are thinking will almost come back
1: to you. Yeah. Well, it, it's familiarity, <clears throat> isn't it? Absolutely. It's familiarity. And the brain, if, if the brain's job is to keep you alive, the brain's job will keep you in a place that's familiar, it will it will make sure that you stay there, a bit like the cave, stay there because you don't know these wolves, mm. they might eat you alive, so just stay in your cave. Yeah. Now the cave might be cold and dark and damp, but that's better than risking the potential of the big bad wolf coming to get you. Because it's so the potential sense. of what could happen. And remember, we use this to imagine the worst case scenario because the brain wants to predict. It wants to make sure that those wolves aren't going to be there and that we can dodge them. So it's predicting all the time to keep you alive. But that's maladaptive for a lot of us because we overthink. And the reason that we overthink is we might have learned that from a parent or from a sibling or even... We might have learned that from our friends at school, you know, the people we grew up with. So we tend to mirror, especially girls, actually. Girls are much better at masking and mirroring than boys. So girls tend to mirror. Um, Boys do as well, but it's girls are very uh, open to that because of the empathy. We have slightly, we're wired more for empathy than boys are. So we tend to mirror and mask more, which is why things like autism and ADHD are harder to detect in girls. Mm. Because they do really mask and mirror very well. Um, so with that being said, if you're, if you're a young girl and you're going through something and you're masking and mirroring, people might not know you're not okay. And it tends to be the adaption of the brain, like the overthinking, but that can go on inside your head. Nobody knows about that. So you could be struggling. That's what I said about the broken nail. You could be really struggling all your life and you break a nail and people say, it's ridiculous. It's a broken nail. That's not a trauma, but you haven't even understood yet yourself that your response to the broken nail is uh, you know an amalgamation of years worth of mirroring masking suppressing sometimes repressing and it's only when you start to really explore the mind and don't forget the mind is abstract the the theories now say the mind and the brain are the same thing but I, I say try and separate the mind the mind informs the brain so just try and separate and imagine that you're you know um it's in your handbag. It's there with you. It's in your handbag. It's there. You, you can get it out if you want to, but you don't have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. It's like you can switch it off and observe it instead. Just slightly move away and observe the mind because if you ever record yourself, like we we will do podcasts, so we will hear ourselves and you might hear something that you've said and said, oh, I, I don't like that. That's mm-hmm. not something I actually feel like I align with. I don't know why I said that, but you can hear it. But with our inner mind and the parts of us that come up they've been there for so long the inner critic the perfectionist the procrastinator you know the inner bully or, or even the anxiety the anger they've been there for so long that you become unconscious and so it's all happening inside your head but when you hear it out loud on a podcast or on a voicemail or you know if you've had an argument with your friend or your husband or whatever and you listen back to the voicemail you go I don't like that how many times have we done that and said... Oh, interesting. I'm actually quite embarrassed about that. But in the moment, you feel so right. Wow. You feel like you're right. And that's when we have to step. So it's always about practicing the observation, which in my practice, I use hypnotherapy, EMDR. I use IFS, which is a type of psychotherapy that looks at the internal systems, the internal parts. And with those three mainly... You can see that people are able to observe themselves in a slightly different way mm-hmm. and also get into that programming, that subconscious program, which is approximately 95% of your thinking. And once you get into that and then using the EMDR, which is all about how the brain uses bilateral stimulation to reprocess. Okay. Um which is a, a not a new therapy, actually. It's about 35 years old, but more people are hearing about it now because we're talking more about trauma. Right. So all of those therapies combined. But I also use sound bowls and quite holistic therapies within what I do because the brain resonates with sound. If you put probes on someone's head when they're listening to music, Brainwave activity actually changes. Wow. So we know that people resonate with sound. And depending on what you're trying to do, breath work, which I incorporate as well. A lot. That helps a lot. Really, it's the life force. But if you're activating life force, breath work, mm-hmm. with sound, and your brain starts to resonate with the soothing voice of the practitioner, with the tools like EMDR, you can actually shift perception because we remove emotional tags from memories and they become people generally become more clear without those heavy tags attached to the memory. Wow. And that's why I say trauma is perception. Because you can change
0: it. You spoke just now about being sexually abused when you were a child. Yes. And it's very clear from what you've said that you no longer experience that pain, how you moved on, now you're helping so many people with their trauma, Mm -hmm. that you were able to overcome that trauma. Yes. I want to first talk about how you identify that what you're going through is a traumatic experience. Yeah. And when was the first time you realised that what was happening was wrong? Because from what you mentioned as a child, everything's going through
1: unfiltered. Yes. So
0: how does the body know? How does a child know that that's wrong?
1: It's so interesting. I'm really glad you asked that question because it's a really important one. And I may not have got to this point had you not have asked. Your body has this unconscious system, it's brain-body. So we say the thinking is 95%. It's actually the brain to the nervous system. So underneath this skin and bone are neurotransmitters and hormones. And what happens is when the brain perceives a threat, it will send adrenaline, well, noradrenaline, then adrenaline, then cortisol through the body, fight-flight. And you might not feel it as you see in the films or in the movies, like this sudden panic, like (gasps) run, 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 but you will feel... For me, I remember feeling in my body, before I could really understand and articulate because I was so young, feeling in my body, this is wrong. And I wouldn't know how to say it other than this is wrong. How old were you? I was uh, sexually abused for several years up until the age of 11. Um, So it was a case of knowing that I didn't like it. It felt very uncomfortable, but I didn't have the words for it like you say. What happens is, and for me, when I ask people where they feel the anxiety, trauma or whatever in their body, they often say the tummy, which is often true. Mm -hmm. But I say to people, is it the tummy or is it slightly higher up the solar plexus, just underneath the rib cage? And for a lot of people, they go, oh, yeah, actually, it's there. Now, that's the part, we call that the fire in the belly. That's the part where acid is produced in the gut. Now, if you get a shot of cortisol, cortisol is quite corrosive. And if you get too much cortisol, it can create acid in the body. So we know, for example, the body takes a huge strain under stress. Heart disease is um, a massive issue because of stress, stroke, all of these things, as well as diet and exercise. But I I could remember feeling like um, a heat in, in my solar plexus. Now I can use the words to describe that, but it was like a heat. And then I just remember feeling it sort of move up, actually, rather than down for me, which was like concrete in my chest. So it was it was a fight-flight response. So if that happens repeatedly and the child will not, especially if it's a parent or a sibling or a family member or a close friend of the family, someone who's supposed to be trusted, they will not feel like they can say anything. Yeah, Because the fight flight kicks in, but you will also experience freeze. And during that moment, you'll experience undoubtedly disassociation. So when you are fight freeze and then fully disassociated, you'll go to school the next day. You may even go downstairs and have dinner and it will be an appear to everybody else that there's nothing wrong and the child will just use the adults around them to guide them how to behave so they've disassociated, now they're self-abandoning and now they're playing the game of what everybody else wants because they don't have the words to articulate and it might well be that the predator, the abuser is telling them not to say anything, they don't have to be forcibly saying if you say anything I'll tell you off or you'll be in trouble, it could just be other people won't understand If you say to a child, don't do this, don't do that, other people won't understand. The child will do what they're told. Yes. So it takes a while to work out what to do with that. Um, For me, I'm just somebody that speaks out. And I think by the time I got to 11, I was a bit like, I've had enough of this. I don't like it. Um, Certain things had happened and I just knew That I I really wasn't safe. I knew I didn't feel safe. And I think that level of um, feeling unsafe got worse and worse and worse. Um, Did your dad ask
0: you not to say anything?
1: Yes. Okay. He said, um, basically he said, and it wasn't a threat. He basically said, don't tell your mum, she won't understand. So, of course, in your mind is, Oh, I don't want my mum to be upset. She won't understand. But you can't really articulate it or understand it beyond that. Of course. So it's a very tricky place for a child to be. Because you repress everything, it will come out in different ways. Okay. So I think the next step of of that abuse for me was that my mum, one of the first things she said um, after I, I it was disclosed at school, the police had to go home to arrest my dad. So you shared it at school? I shared it at school. It was actually not meant to be like a whole... Full disclosure, it was just sharing a a journal with a friend. But someone snatched the journal and it just went around the class. I was in a maths class and they snatched the journal and everybody knew. Yeah, it was quite, that was traumatic. And that's, I that I remember that and I ran into the toilets and I just locked the door and I just remember feeling like my world had collapsed. That's the only way I can really describe it. There are no words for it. That's the problem. And the sad thing is is that children go through this all the time. But they Nobody can't knows. move through it. It's so hard. Um, and we as a community, as adults and, and as friends and family, we have to see the signs. Signs like, I was never washing. You know, I was really uncomfortable with having any connection to my body. So I was smelly. I didn't wash. I was heavily overweight. Things that seem really clear and obvious... To me, if I okay. see a child like that, I would I would be asking questions.
0: Yeah, what else are the signs? So they're, they're not washing,
1: not cleaning, okay. they would be um, detached. You, If you see, a, especially within the home, if someone's been to your house and your child changes behaviour, they might not like that, but they might be rude to that person for no reason. It might have never happened before and all of a sudden they're being rude or dismissive mm-hmm. and, and they want to leave the room. Children's body language says it all bed wetting is a sign as well where children become very anxious and all of a sudden they're bed wetting so not washing you know personal hygiene is really awful changing mood all of a sudden bed wetting change in eating habits anything that just seems this doesn't seem right Mm. follow your intuition and it's about how do we ask the child you ask you just ask is everything okay when so-and-so is in the house today? You seem really upset. You seem really different. Is everything okay? It's perfectly safe for you to tell me. You have to create a safe place for that child. Because if you don't, the chances are they won't tell you. And if they do and your reaction to it isn't okay, they will suppress it again. I actually told a friend and she told her mum. And her mum asked me because I, I said, oh, my dad does these things to me and her mum asked me, and I immediately went, no, it's only a joke, and they told me off, and that was it. Now, children don't joke about stuff like that.
0: Was this before the journal?
1: This was before the journal, so it wasn't long before, actually. I think it was maybe six months. My timeline may be a bit skew if there, but it was about six months before.
0: But why did you feel safe not to tell her? Did she tell you off, or did she ask you in an aggressive way? I think
1: that if I'm being completely honest, trying to go back into that mindset, I think it was a case of, if I say this, my dad's going to get into trouble. The child, in almost all instances, will protect the parents. Yes. That 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 is an all children self-abandon. You see, when I was talking about trauma early earlier. Trauma can be the feeling of protecting a parent because it's self-abandonment and the brain adapts to self-abandonment. It becomes more hypervigilant. It becomes more disassociated. When you become hypervigilant or disassociated, you may use substances, be that food, be that drugs, be that alcohol, even things like promiscuity, you know, certain behaviors, exercise to escape the feeling of disassociation or to escape the feeling of hypervigilance. So, there's all these different you see why that question's so difficult to answer. there's so many different layers to trauma and how it manifests and And also, if I was to say to you, well your your trauma's not as bad as mine because because I had all of this and and that person might think, "Oh, m- maybe that's right i I don't yeah, I'm not valid in how I feel." and they shut it down, and that creates more stress in the system, more cortisol. So essentially and importantly, the key here is you will feel it before you think it. You will feel there is something wrong before you think it. Your brain is sending messages to your body all the time. We talk about gut instinct and obviously without going into too much science here, the vagus nerve, bidirectional, neurotransmitters, particularly serotonin, dopamine and GABA move through into the gut, they get produced there and they go back up into the brain. Hormones will react differently depending on different circumstances. So, we know we must feel that sensation of something's wrong and never ignore it. And don't ignore those changes in children either, or even in adults. You know, it could be your friend in a relationship who's being abused. You will see changes in them. Ask them, let them feel safe no matter what the wow. thing is. Hold the space because that's the most important thing. So I think when it comes to all of us, we should be aware of what someone's feeling and try not get them to think too much about it, but explain what they're feeling and where. And then you can apply more logic to it afterwards. Mm. And I always start with that. The number one thing
0: that people cannot lie about is energy. Yes. I could tell you that I really like you and I have your best interests at heart and I'm really gonna support you and I have really good intentions. But the one thing that will show me that you're lying is my gut. Yes. And I will never ever, ever ignore my gut. I have met many people that will tell me all the right things and will, on paper, be wonderful. And my gut is telling me there is something going wrong. Mm And People will say you're mad. I did a podcast uh, with somebody, very influential, and mm. had all the ticks on paper, everything was great, they were telling me all the right things and their energy was so off, I found them to be so false, I couldn't release the episode mm. and I was a bit scared if I'm honest because they're quite influential Yeah, and I just thought, I can't do it and I had no reason, what can you say to somebody, I didn't like your energy? What <laughs> what can you say? Right? You can't. It's a very difficult situation. It's a very difficult situation. But I really do believe that you should never, ever ignore your gut. Yeah. And you'll know. But a lot of people confuse their anxiety, their worry with their gut feeling. Yes. How do we distinguish between
1: that? Again, it goes back to the mind if i always um use this technique with people it's quite a common technique but i've kind of adapted it as i've been using it when we go into hypnosis which is just simply slowing down brain waves by the way it feels okay. a bit like a dozy you know when you watch tv and you start to fall asleep mm-hmm. you can still hear it in the background
0: the best feeling ever
1: oh my gosh oh, it. it's that place between sleep and awake dozy so we get people to a dozy state slow down those brain waves when you do that the mind is more receptive because you've bypassed an analytical layer. And during that time, I'll engage the imagination. And we do this thing and I say, whatever the situation is that's causing you a problem, be it anxiety or worry. I want you to imagine watching yourself from the front row of the cinema on the screen in that situation. And they go, yeah, okay. How's it feel to watch from the front row? Oh, I don't like it. It's, it's really overwhelming. It's uncomfortable. I say, okay. So we sit with that for a few moments. And I said, tell me what you can see. Tell me what your body language is doing. Tell me what you think as you watch. Mm-hmm. So we're having this conversation during the hypnosis. Then we go, okay, let's go to the middle row now. And you're the observer now. So you're the observer of the watcher. And you're watching yourself, watching the screen. Tell me what you feel about the watcher. So we're just stepping back again. And they go, oh, yeah, the watcher looks a bit uncomfortable. Not as uncomfortable as the version on the screen, but a little bit uncomfortable. But I can sit here and feel a little less attached to that issue on the screen. Okay. Okay, now we've done that. Let's step all the way back. Pretend you're the projector. So you're projecting the image. What would you change? And they go, oh, I would change this. I would change the color. I would change the sound. I would change the smell. I say, okay, take all that away and just change it as you would want to see it. How do you feel about that? Oh, I like that. How's your body feeling? I feel relaxed. I feel quite calm. It's that easy to switch the perception, but you have to be relaxed. You have to understand what the process is and why you're doing that. And I say, do you think that's a realistic projection that you've got now? Do you think you can do that? Yeah, I do. Okay. What would stop you? I think it's the old feedback loops. Okay, so what can we do to stop the feedback loop? We have to be aware of when it starts. Where do you feel it in your body as the watcher? On the screen, watch on the screen. Tell me where it is in your body again. Oh, it's in my tummy, it's in my shoulders. It's... Okay, so when you feel that feeling, do you think you'd be aware of it now? Yes, I would. What will you do? What can we do? And we put in the techniques whilst they're in hypnosis. I record the session so they can repeat, repeat, repeat. repetitions, recognition neurons that fire together wire together that's neuroplasticity for you we start to change the circuits and the sequences and the belief systems when you also and I do a bit of a hybrid so when you also bring in bilateral stimulation which is the what the brain does when it goes into REM sleep so when you go into REM sleep your eyes move very very quickly inside your head right to left right to left right to left during that time we do the emotional processing and the memory storage okay When you store a memory, the emotion that you felt at the time is labelled on it. So I went to, you know, the cinema, a man behind me was very, very noisy and I was angry. So when you think of that film, you might be a little bit angry because the man behind you was so noisy and offensive. Okay, so that's a very simple example. But during that moment of now I'm the projector Mm -hmm. and I'm changing it, I'll I'll start getting them to tap side to side because they're already in a deep state of relaxation using buttons. I start to tap and I say, right now, we're going to put in new layers of emotion. Tell me how you think with the new memory. As you observe yourself watching the new memory in the middle row, how do you feel? Oh, I feel much better watching this. We're changing the impact of the emotional label Mm -hmm. and bringing that together with a new version of their anxiety or their worry. So I think the way that you know that it's anxiety and worry is when you can step back, observe and change it very, very quickly. With a trauma, there's so many more layers to it. Okay, A a simple technique like that probably wouldn't work. You'd need to do the deeper exploration and you'd probably need several sessions. However, having said that, EMDR could be so powerful. I've worked with some people that have been very badly sexually abused, violently raped, terrible situations. By the time we do the bilateral, we've done enough of the explorative work and education. Once people understand how their brains work, how it connects to the body the energetic side of things as well feeling you know like people say you can cut the atmosphere with a knife or you walk into a room where everyone's laughing and you walk in smiling because you're immediately feeling that energy wow so you know applying all those different principles and doing the deeper exploration work and the education work mm-hmm. you can find that some people are really responsive to just one session of EMGR or hypnotherapy
0: What's the difference between your gut and the anxious feeling? How do you know which is you know this is my brain telling me, which yeah. is my my second brain telling me, which yeah. is my gut yeah, or actually this is me overthinking, this is me being paranoid, this is my anxiety, my fear, my trauma.
1: Yeah, I think, again, you feel it. Okay. You feel it. So you will feel, most people will feel a tight chest or a compressed chest, if it's gut instinct, because it's risen up. Okay. Solar plexus, like that burning in the yeah. belly, like almost like a, a dropping feeling, mm. but it could rise. Or they'll feel a bit sick or a bit um, stuck in their tummy. Wow. Okay. That's a gut instinct. When you're thinking oh, you're up me? here. You're almost <laughs> yeah. I'm like all those <laughs> Yeah. You see, that's a very that's how you know something's gone on, neurotransmitter, hormone changes, your your gut instinct has received a lot of messages from the brain. Nuts. When you're thinking, it's almost hypnotic. It's like a daydream.
0: Oh. You see, what if this what
1: if that those people are flashing me? That you can almost feel the difference because you, you hear the chatter. But you have to be aware of the difference. That's a good question. I I kind of didn't answer that the first time you asked it. It's okay. (laughs) It's a good question (laughs) because you hear it. You remember I said about IFS psychotherapy? IFS psychotherapy is a trauma-focused psychotherapy and it's called Internal Family Systems Okay. developed by a guy called Richard Schwartz for anyone that wants to look into it. He basically used to do family systems. So he would sit with the family and he'd do the counseling with them and he realized that As each member was talking, they were talking from almost an internal family system. So inner critic, the anxious part, the perfectionist, the procrastinator, all of those different parts were coming up. And he he sort of identified that each person has their own internal family system. So, But you don't notice them because they're talking to you all the time. So, for example, um, you know, there might be time when I'm on the train going home, I might think, why did I say that? And that's the inner critic. Or I might think, I could have done that so much better. That's the perfectionist. And I might be angry with I won't be. But, you know, there's an example. I might Mm -hmm. be angry with myself because I I did this thing and it looked silly or I sounded silly or whatever it is. So that's the overthinking. The inner critic is generally. And also the fear. Because everyone's so scared. They're scared of judgment. They're scared of failure. They're scared of rejection. Mm -hmm. And so if you start to feel like... What if that person doesn't like me or what if that person, you know, with the influential person, what if that person says these things about me? I see. It's more of a chatter, whereas the gut instinct, you walk into a room and you just don't feel safe, Mm. that's different. Or you don't feel safe around that person. Yes, that's so true. And that's where I say about watching children and their body language, if they suddenly change their behaviours or even a friend family member watch Gosh. their body language 90 percent of communication is iqs body language and tone of voice not what people say
0: wow yeah
1: so that's a key point as well if someone's just not communicating with you the way they normally would you can often hear <clears throat> anxiety in people's voices can't you because their throats constricted <laughs> the energy is blocked and you know, me right now like <laughs> yeah, coughing it out. Coughing yeah. it out. But you can, I'm recovering from a cold, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I've had one there's a very nightmare. nasty one going on. I know. See, that's not trauma, that's inconvenience. I don't oh
0: yeah, exactly. I just <laughs> I just wanted to emphasize that by the way, yeah. <laughs> I I wanna go back to what you were saying about your mum. Yes. So you found out at school. Yes. She found out at school. Yep. What happened in that process? So somebody, t- you passed it on
1: in a journal. So it was snatched out of my hand, um, passed around the class. And then because I ran to the um, toilets and there was a lot of commotion, a dinner lady came in and she was shouting at me. And, I, you know, my friend must have said she's been sexually abused by her dad. So, like, everybody just knew. And then all I can remember is lots of movement. It was like being in a train station, but everything was on fast forward. And I I had to go to the headmaster's office because there was nowhere else to put me, but it was lunchtime. And everybody, uh, the the windows looked out on the field and all the kids were playing. And I was sitting there just thinking, my world is, like, my dad's going to be arrested. My mum's going to hate me. Uh, My brother and sister are going to fall out with me. Like, where will I live? And, you know, having all of these, what's going to happen? And I was there for hours because the police had to go and arrest him. And then they had, you know, he had to be gone. My mum obviously had to be informed eventually the police take me home and my mum's on the phone to someone I do that because I'm of that age and um, I saw her through the window and pretty much the first thing she said was I don't know if I'm going to stay married to your dad and in that moment I knew she was I knew she would stay married to him because the fact that she'd questioned it and said that out loud just left me feeling like well why would you say that if you if you were going to leave you just leave and she did stay with him and he came back after he went to prison he came back into the home there was a brief period where he stayed in a bedsit or something and then eventually came back unfortunately after that because he, he had been violent as well as sexually abusive he became violent again on boxing day to you yeah and it was um yeah it was it was a difficult thing because i'd worked so hard to forgive forget move on and that happened again and I just realised then that it was it wasn't just me being over the top or difficult because my mum would always say you're such a difficult teenager and she would sort th- and I'd be like well God. I'm not but I was I, it wasn't difficult I was escaping I was drinking you know, I was I was out all the time. I didn't want to be at home. Of course. And when I was out, everyone knew my business anyway. And people would shout awful things at me in the street. They would say stuff like, you like having sex with your dad, you slag, you know, all this sort of stuff. So everywhere I went, I wasn't safe. So I was trying to escape all the time. Got myself into very difficult situations, was raped at 13 by a 20-year-old because I wasn't, the boundaries weren't clear, you see. And at that age, you're just trying to get away from wh- where the, problem is but you end up in other children don't have the ability again really key when we look at teenagers and that you know we see teenagers acting up or playing up or young girls having sex and all this stuff when they shouldn't be their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until at least 21 so their analysis their decision making and their logic which all goes on at the front as well as emotional regulation they're not able to apply that properly so they can't make logical decisions. And if they're not safe and being looked after at home, they're going to end up being taken advantage of. So that was happening. And so was, you didn't feel safe with I your mum? I didn't feel safe at all with <clears throat> my mum. My I think she would struggle to admit this and she doesn't take responsibility for anything. because I think it's her protector part. Don't take responsibility. It's not my fault sort of thing. Um it was just toxic all the time and i was i was seeking love and safety and i would get so angry because and i was i was self-harming i was cutting but, and and people always say self-harming is attention seeking which it's not it is there's a fundamental reason why i say that why, why on earth do people say that because they're uneducated because they see it as a really irrational behavior which it is it's irrational to them because they don't know how to They know that they're safe. They don't have to manage pain. But two things. If there's a lot of pain up here and you can't stop it, what's really popular at the moment, cold showers, ice baths. One of the reasons that works is because it's a short, sharp shock of stress and it breaks the state. You have to focus on your breathing, you know. So once you're doing that, you can only focus on the breathing. I liken self-harm to that. If you're in distress... I'm not saying it's healthy, by the way. Cold showers are the way to go if you do want to break the state and you're anxious. But think about it in the maladaptive young person's brain. Too much pain, they're so distressed, they're like a wild animal. You can see it in their eyes. When they cut, they're shifting the pain from the head to the arm or the leg. Not only that, when we bleed, the brain produces dopamine. Because when we bleed, the brain says we need to survive. So it gives you dopamine to survive to keep going to find a safe place oh my god i did not know that so that's why it can be addictive because when it breaks the state two you're getting the blood which gives you the dopamine which gives you the motivation to survive that's the problem with self-harm is that it's actually quite a good way to break the state but it's really maladaptive. oh my
0: gosh i never knew that yeah. so you were self-harming
1: you said you were raped when you were 13 yeah did you tell your mum about that? No, because actually I walked away kind of thinking, oh well, that's just you know, I didn't want to go through that whole police thing again. Oh my god. Because I'd gone through the whole police thing. Um and and really the shame because people were saying that I enjoyed it. You know, I was being bullied by boys at school that were just horrible to me. They would they would walk past and, you know, you smell of sex. That was it was horrible. It was horrible. So to go through that again. I just thought, well, that's happened. What What can you do about it? You know, I don't want people to think... Again, you self-abandon.
0: So at what stage did you... How old were you when your dad came out of prison? I think...
1: This is difficult. Again, timelines are slightly skewed. Mm. I think it was around 14.
0: He was only in prison for three yeah. years. Yeah. And he came back into the home. Yes. How was that allowed, though, with the authorities and...
1: They weren't involved. Do you know what? I've said this before, and this is shocking. Um, When it happened, I had two social workers. One I saw twice, her name was Sue. She took me to McDonald's twice and she barely spoke a word to me. The other one was a lady called Debbie. Now, Debbie was integral in my understanding of myself because Debbie disclosed she'd been... She was a social worker. She'd been um, sexually abused by her granddad and she told me that and I was like, oh, I'm not the only one then. It kind of made me feel like there are other people. But she also said in that conversation that she was moving to the probation service so she wouldn't see me again. And after that, there was nobody. The social services were not involved. This was 30-odd years ago, remember? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was a very different time. Um, and I didn't get any, any help at all, none. I After I was self-harming, um, I, I had to go to the doctors because I'd slit my wrists, if I'm going to be completely honest. And I had to be stitched up. I had to have the stitches taken out of the doctor's surgery by a doctor called Dr. Freeman. I'm going to name and shame. He was awful. And he told me off for wasting his time. Bear in mind, he had all the notes of what had happened. Oh, so God. he said, see the counsellor, who was a lady called Denise. I saw the counsellor and she was so cold and almost aggressive with me that I never went back. Oh, Ella. It's is awful, so isn't it? Awful. But that's what women and boys of my age group, so 45 now, were dealing with back then. And that's why I think we've seen such a rise in mental health. And the, as I mentioned, the epigenetic responses to that. Um, and so there was a lot of those two suicide attempts, although... I didn't really know what I was doing. So I say suicide attempts. These were ways of communicating for me because nobody was listening because I was the problem teenager. I was the issue because I was full of anger. I was the issue because I just was, you know, drinking too much or whatever. So the only way to communicate is to say, all right, well, I'd rather just fall asleep then because, you know, I quite like sleep. And if if you don't wake up, you don't wake up. That was the mindset at the time. Um, But... So on and off, I would talk to my mum and dad and then not talk to my mum and dad. And then there was a solid few years where I felt like it's just better to put this all behind us because my mum had conditioned me to think that way. That you you were in the wrong. Basically, I'm in the wrong. Ella, you're the problem. You're the uh, erratic, irrational, um, angry child or young adult. So, you know, you can't hold down a job. You can't pay your way or whatever it was because I left home at 16.
0: I was just going to ask but sorry I just want to rewind a little bit so when your dad came back from prison what was the conversation you
1: had with your mum about taking him back? Well it's a very interesting question because me and my mum would argue all the time it was really toxic and I would scream as she would scream it would be awful it was very upsetting we had this argument and um, I just thought I just want her to be nice to me I just want her to love me oh, that's what I really wanted and so I thought I'll just say that dad can move back in and then, and then it'll make her happy and I remember she was sitting in the kitchen she had a paper she was having a coffee at the table I said mum um, I'm sorry dad can come home and she just went okay and carried on turning the pages and it was at that moment I was like as soon as I can get out of this house I'm getting out because I don't want my dad to come back this woman doesn't care about me at all But to everybody else, everybody else, she's this jolly, funky, happy little person that they all loved and everyone used to say that didn't know what had happened. Okay. Isn't your mum this? Isn't your mum that? And I'd be like, yeah. And inside, I would feel like a part of me had died because they didn't know and I had to keep pretending. And obviously my dad had made me pretend. I'd spent my life from very, very young You know, he would use, which a lot of parents did of that time, he would use belts, he would, you know, use harsh punishment. I was scared of my dad from really as long as I can remember. I'm going to go maybe as far back as five, these memories of the, you know, violence and then obviously sexual abuse. And so I was scared of him. So I was pretending all the time. Um, And then just certain things that he would do that were just psychologically just playing games with my head. Then my mum was this funky, lovely woman that the people that didn't know loved. So I've I've spent a very long part of my life pretending that I'm okay. So it it was almost easy to go with what she wanted because it was how she'd conditioned me, how mm-hmm. they'd conditioned me. And that's the biggest trap that I think a lot of people that have been abused or neglected or bullied they fall into the people-pleasing trap because they've been kind of conditioned that way. Yeah. You know, even if he's been bullied at school, which people don't really label the same as abuse, but children take their lives over that stuff. It is abuse, just because it's another child doing it doesn't mean it's not detrimental to that person's life. And even now with social media, it's so you know, somebody bad.
0: killed themselves in India because he posted a video. He was um, posted a video of him in a sari for Diwali, and the comments got to him so much, and people bullying him so much, he took his own life.
1: That's so awful. awful.
0: And sometimes I think that why is it that we say oh, when you have a platform, you have to accept the harsh comments? No, you don't. Why is it we're normalising it? I can't understand it. I had this realisation the other day. I've said it myself, by the way. Yeah. And I had this realisation the other day when someone wrote a really horrible comment and I said, why is it that this is normal? Why is it that when you talk about COVID or you talk about something triggering and it comes up on YouTube as a sign, why is it that Instagram meta youtube they don't automatically delete these comments if i can hide and filter the words which you can do on tiktok which you can do on instagram why can't instagram do that why is it okay to spread hate from an account that you've just made with no face called user three two four five six yeah why is it that not everybody has to submit their id yes and their information to create an account online why have we accepted it as a generation because oh you've put yourself out there So you should be open to the hate.
1: But look at the celebrity world. It does the same. It puts them all the way to the top and then kicks them down and watches them bleed and gets pleasure out of it. I think there's two reasons why. Um, If Instagram and, you know, all the big, you know, money makers, TikTok, all of those, if they were to do that, there'd be far less people using it.
0: Oh, 100%.
1: So let's, you know, Mm -hmm. let's admit that that's probably is a financial reason why. The other side of this, of course, is that if I'm hurt and I don't know how to deal with that hurt and I need some, you know, maybe a bit of attention, I need to be seen, I need to be heard because no one's seeing me and hearing me, I've got these really maladaptive traits and the only way I know to get attention is through doing something negative. It's like the child in nursery who hits the other child, they get told off but they're getting seen. Yeah, It's the same principle. And if you're beautiful, beautiful, which you are, You know, you're beautiful. People will perceive you a certain way as successful, financially wealthy. Whether that's true or not, that's what they will perceive you as. All right, well, you won't mind because you've got everything you could possibly want in life. There's nothing wrong in your life. You won't mind. But I'm going to get seen because someone's going to notice that comment. They're going to say something to me. And now I've got a bit of a platform myself through you.
0: Hurt people hurt people. They do. And the best way to describe that is think about when you're sad. Mm. Genuinely, let's be honest with ourselves. Yeah. There's that times where I get pissed off.
1: Absolutely. And there's times
0: where I want to write something hateful because it's pissed me off. Yes. And only when I'm pissed off, I will want to say, it. I've never done it. No. But there are times I want to reply to my comments yeah. and I really want to say something rude. Yes. Many times. Yes. And that's when I'm in a bad mood. Yes. But let me think of a time where something amazing has happened to me. Mm. And I've read that comment. mm Do I want to respond in that way?
1: Exactly. Never. Different lens.
0: So how bad must that person be feeling that they're writing that on your page? Or they're saying that to your face or they're bitching behind your back? Yes. Because no one on their wedding day, when they're the happiest person in their life, I'm using that stereotype, (laughs) is going to be saying negative things about somebody else. that They're not. No,
1: they're not. You're absolutely right. Or when they've had a baby. You haven't. First of all. The chemical response in your brain just doesn't... This is what I was saying earlier about observing the mind. The chemical response in your brain when you're really, really happy just doesn't allow the fight-flight response. So you don't feel the need to go... "Ah." You don't. That's where you've got to observe your mind and observe your patterns. And you might not be able to do that fully on your own, but there are brain-based techniques such as the ones I've mentioned earlier that can really help to reprocess. It takes time, though, for a lot of people. takes time
0: but how did you I'm everything you're saying to me and the reason why I've entwined your story in this rather than asking you to tell me the story and then go into it yes is I really want people to hear and understand how much you've grown yeah in the sense that it gives them hope that if this has happened to them yes that it doesn't have to be you yes that's right so when you were 16 you said you left yes what happened how did you decide to leave how did you leave
1: dropped out of A-levels and thought the best thing I could do is earn some money and move out. I got a job that was paying, I think, £90 a week at the time. The rent was £50 a week for this bed sit. I had enough money for food and we were using 50p electric metres at the time. And it was just through taking... I mean, those years that followed, really up until early 20s, were tumultuous. There was lots of drinking, you know, poor relationships and all of those things. But I think it got to a point where... I was in the darkest of dark places, suicidal, um, and essentially embarrassed about the state of my life when I was looking around and looking at other people's lives. And what I really got from that was they can do it, you know, just looking at some of my friends that were maybe buying houses or buying cars, they can do it. What are they doing different to me? So again, I went into the observer mode and it was there was a drive in me and I think the survival drive eventually flipped and it was only because I had nothing and I only had myself to rely on because I was living on my own in this horrible little bedsit. And it was at that point where it was like, you, you do or die at this point. You know, you're embarrassed, you're ashamed but there were people doing this, they're going to work, they're managing to save money or whatever it is that they're doing. How do I do it? And I started to be curious. And through that curiosity, I found compassion. Now, I'm making it sound really simple. Yes. <laughs> but it's a long journey. But actually, what I didn't have was someone like me. I've always tried to be the therapist that I needed. So I try and give people these bite-sized chunks and lots of sort of homework to do in these brain-based techniques so they don't have to spend 20 years discovering how to do it so it's that life's journey that curiosity leads to compassion in the end because if you're observing other people and what they're doing you can feel compassion so if you saw your friend your best friend crying in a corner and being angry about something you'd probably try to soothe her if you're crying in a corner and being angry about something it's likely your inner critic's going to come up and and it was that that I was able to see. I wasn't able to apply things to myself that I could to other people. So it was just understanding how to flip it and how to observe it. But again, to save people time, it is worth going to see a coach or a therapist that is trauma-informed. 100%. And that discloses parts of their life, not to the point where it's about them. Yes. But where you can see they're going to get it. Because that's what a lot of my clients will say. They say, you just get it. Of
0: course they were, And that's what
1: you need. It's the safe space. It goes back to that. That's what I mentioned earlier. Provide a safe space for someone and the right tools for that person. They will see themselves in you. Because it is all mirrors. That's what I was saying earlier. We all mirror each other. So So provide that mirror in a way that is safe for that person. And they won't have to go through as much of the trauma. And that's what we can do for each other. And that's why these podcasts are important because it's sharing these bite-sized chunks of information that people can learn from
0: a lot of the time when you go through something that is traumatic and you go through something that you know you've had to go through ordeal after ordeal after ordeal mm. If I, if someone came up to me and said that to me and I said, well, you know what? You've just got to look at other people yeah. and say to them and see what can I do to change and take, and focus on your circle of control mm. and focus on what you can do. They would say I'm being un- unempathetic and yeah. I have no idea what they're going through <laughs> yeah. and how on earth can I tell them that after they've been through so much that it's all up to them. Mm. People hate it when I say your life is in your control, which it is, by the yeah,
1: way. It is fully. Unfortunately, right. yeah. no matter what
0: you've been through, your yeah. life is in your control. Yeah, yeah. But it's a very tough pill to swallow. Mm. Even tougher when you yourself have to give it to yourself. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. So how did that happen? Because you weren't in a place where you were learning about all these different tools. You know, no. we are so blessed right now. We have the internet. So
1: true. We did not we have, have it have so there. many
0: tools. You didn't have a therapist. No. You didn't have a counsellor. You didn't have the support from your parents. You didn't have a safe space.
1: And I didn't have the internet. The honest truth is, and a lot of people think you can swerve the darkest of places and you can't. You have to go there. And I got sick of it. I got so sick of it. You can't... Unfortunately, if you look at the most successful people in the world, most of them have had the pit of pain. You know, and that's because I've been watching... Um, to answer the question, I've been watching the Slice Alone documentary on Netflix. Okay. It's a very good one to watch. Because he really sort of goes to the dark place having nothing. And he talks about the point where he started to make it with the Rocky franchise and he just lost that inspiration and that motivation because he'd been a struggling young man surviving. And that gave him that drive, that gave him that motivation. As soon as it all got a bit too easy, he lost it and he had to find ways of creating it.
0: Because How it is just
1: survival. The brain literally. Will only do its best work when it's in survival mode. If you're too comfortable, often people do lose that that fizz, that fire in their belly. That, and that's all about the way the brain works and the chemicals and the responses. So it's first of all, you have to be. I think, in you know, people always talk about rock bottom, don't they? There's a reason that people say these things. You do have to go into the dark place to come back up. And unfortunately, like you said, it's about personal control. People get sick of themselves in the end. When I see some people in therapy, they come uh, do sort of coaching style as well. Some will come for coaching, for business coaching. And you'll uncover a lot of their sort of limiting self-beliefs and a lot of their pain and trauma that way. But some people are coming because they've got sick of themselves I can't live like this anymore, I can't live with this anxiety, I can't live with this depression, I can't live with this lack of success, I feel like I'm a failure, you know, all of the, that's when they present. I didn't have that person, but I was so sick of myself, I can remember not even having 50p to put into the electric meter, and I remember I was sharing a bath, I had a bed sit with a kitchenette, I had to share a bath with like all these people, I, I was in a, I was. in I couldn't afford anything. So to get warm, I'd have to go to the local pub to have a glass of orange squash, which would be like 26p. Because I, had, I didn't have enough money for the electric, so I'd go and sit there, and then there was a lovely restaurant nearby that used to give me free food. But as kind as they were, and I'll never forget them for it, I got sick of it. I got so sick of it, and the only way out was up. It was either that or or I would get, it was only going to get worse.
0: Can I ask a really hard question here? Yeah. What distinguishes that point where you either go up or you come to a point where you're like, I can't do this anymore?
1: Well, the, there was suicidal attempts for me, and I think when they failed, or when I failed at that, it was almost like you've got no choice. How do we prevent people from becoming into going to that place where they have
0: suicidal thoughts because what I don't want people to say is okay yeah. I'll try and then I'll try I and wanna, go yeah.
1: to the suicidal yeah. thoughts I think one of the things that you you said there was that I didn't have the family I didn't have the counsellors or the therapists. there wasn't the internet there was now we have resources and actually at the time funnily enough and ironically I lived about a two minute walk from the Samaritans building but I didn't even know what the Samaritans was then. They weren't what they are now. Right. But I look back and I think, because it's still there now, I think <clears throat> they were literally two minutes away. Wow. But they weren't, again, marketing wasn't what it is now. It wasn't all over the place. You know, it wasn't on the telly. It wasn't on your on your yeah. phone in your hand. The resources weren't available. We have moved on a lot. So for those people, you have got the Samaritans 116123UK. You can call someone in the depths of despair. Investment in yourself is difficult when you don't have any money. But there are charities like Mind. There yes. are resources. I knew none of this at the time. Mm-hmm. So there, there are people that want to help. And I think if you're in the depths of despair and you're feeling suicidal, you can literally Google... I feel like I want to take my life. And Google will give you a helpline number. Okay. So there are things that you can do now when you're in that space. If I'm being honest with you and going back to that thing I said about genetic expression and epigenetics, I don't know if there's just something structurally in my makeup that enabled me to survive that. I will never know that answer fully. What I do know is I got to the depths of despair and that there was no choice. Mm. And I I don't know whether there's a mechanism in my brain or a structure in my brain or something that just kicked in that I can't explain. But what I do know is that I did have to go there and I couldn't swerve it. But do you know what? The other thing is, I'm so grateful I did. I'm so grateful I went there. I'm so grateful for all of those experiences because I appreciate life so much now. I can see the observer Mm -hmm. and I know that I can stand back from the observer and have that awareness. I've done the work. I continually do the work, the reading, the studying. I work with about ten people a day generally. Mm. I absorb myself in this world and it makes me so happy. And I wouldn't have been able to do this without that.
0: And if someone's going gone through trauma right now, or they've gone through sexual abuse or something similar, what are some of the things that they can do to start rewiring their brain and start, you know, becoming that observer so yes. that they can cope and deal with it?
1: Journaling's a great And free place to start as long as you've got a piece of paper and a pen. Write down your thoughts. If you don't want to write them down, a lot of people go, oh, I don't like journaling. You can get voice apps. Okay. And you can literally record yourself talking to the voice recorder. And I used to do this when I was walking the dog because I'd be like, I need to journal, but I just haven't got time. So I used to literally hold the phone to my ear as though I was having a conversation with a friend in case anyone thought I was bonkers. And I just talked to myself about what was going on in my head, Mm. what I wanted to do, what my plans were. And some of those voice notes I had from COVID and their plans that are actually coming to fruition now because I got it out of my head and actually transcribes it. So the notes are all there and I was able to put them together and make something out of it. So voice apps, journaling. So First place to start if you can't afford a therapist. But then if you go on to Google, this is a really simple thing. You can literally put in um, cognitive behavioral therapy, free PDFs or free PDF journal templates or free PDF trauma informed therapy. And it will give you information. So there's some really good steps if you can't afford a therapist. If you can afford a therapist, don't go for the first one. Don't go for the first one. Have a few conversations. I mean, I say that and I can never have a conversation with anyone because I've very rarely got time. But I give them a really detailed download. I get them um, a phone call with my assistant. I send them a folder full of free information. So even if you don't want to use me as your therapist because you don't want to wait, you'll get some information. And you can do that. Some people give free consultations try people out, see who you vibe with because we are mirrors of each other and if you don't vibe with the therapist or the coach, it's not worth it. So true. So that's for those that can invest in therapy. And for those that want to have a chat with someone and and they want to do the journaling as well, that's where you employ things like the Samaritans and the free helplines and Mind, mm. and they're the places to start. I think. Yeah, no, I'm not that's saying so they helpful. work for everybody. Yeah, you've got somewhere to start. Yeah,
0: I think they're both really good options. Yeah, but I've got one last question for you. You've clearly done so much work within yourself, and like I said, you've helped so many people that I know, by the way. Yes, that you've helped a lot.
1: Do you forgive your parents? And I do. how how? Remember I was saying about parts therapy before? And I was talking about the IFS psychotherapy. Um, when I started to study that, it and I'd already felt a sense of letting go of the anger because I knew it was holding me back. I didn't want to carry that anymore. Again, the observer self was aware of carrying anger. It wasn't good for me. I, I didn't feel like I could be my true self with that anger as a mask. So I started to unpack that and let go of it. Then I understood through parts therapy that essentially when someone sexually abuses, physically abuses or even mentally, emotionally abuses somebody else or neglects them, it's usually a part of themselves that has come forward to protect their own victim. You know, the hurt people, hurt people. Theory. So, with my dad, um, he was sexually assaulted as a boy. There was an occasion where he was sexually assaulted. He really didn't talk about it to anybody. His older brother found him after the attack. Um, back then, my dad's 75, he was from Renfrewshire in Paisley, Glasgow. It was a different time altogether. He had to stand in front of the person that had uh, attacked him and identify them and then brush under the carpet. Never spoken about again. And I think at that age, I believe he was quite young, um, his brain structurally adapted. And by that I mean that the way the amygdala works, which is the danger tracker in the brain, the way that emotional processing works, the way that the thought, logical thought process works, I think they're all adapted to that event. And I think what happened was the predator came forward to protect his victim. And this is all unconscious and probably fits into narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy. But structurally, the wiring, he became the predator to protect the victim. And that, I think that's what happens with a lot of people that sexually abuse. They've often been sexually abused themselves or if they've grown up in a violent household, they become violent themselves. It's the predator protecting their victim, the parts. So with my mum... I would say that it, she was very, very close to her, her dad. Her mother, I believe, had mental health issues, so that pushed her dad and her closer together. He had a stroke when she was 21 and died. I think she needed a man to be her, Protect her. protector. So when my dad did what he did to me, she had to disassociate from that so she could keep the protector And that was her protective um, mechanism to protect her from being a lost victim too. So I think that when I could understand that I'm not um, minimising, you know, paedophiles, psychopaths and abusers. But to make sense of it means that I can have a level of empathy and forgiveness for it, which frees me. We talk about forgiveness and I really think forgiveness is understanding. Because you free yourself when you understand things from a logical perspective. Some people can't do that and I fully respect that. But for me, that's really helped. Now, unfortunately, there's psychopaths everywhere and some of them are you know, good people and some of them aren't. It's whether you choose to understand human behaviour so and human experience. And I choose to do that because it enables me to be able to move through it without mm-hmm. holding that energy that fire in my belly that solar plexus issue that anger issue and it allows me to be happy yeah so and i want them to be happy and healthy by the way i don't want them to suffer i think you suffer enough if you've done the things they've done unconsciously or not i don't want that I, that doesn't make me feel better to think of anyone suffering i want people to heal that's in my nature mm. to want people to heal it's a hard thing to achieve i'm sure a lot of people just can't imagine ever feeling that way but that's why doing the work so important and starting somewhere, taking that first step. And I've got to tell you this, the minute I freed myself from anger and the minute I freed myself from feeling like I needed their validation for me to be able to be okay or I needed their love, success flowed. It was like I released all that energy and I became magnetic wow. to the things. I had that clarity and that space to create
0: and you're not close. You're not close to them now. It's I just don't have that have a relationship at all with but them, but you've forgiven them and let them yeah. go. Yeah,
1: which are different things,
0: I think. aren't Yes,
1: they? yes, they are. I couldn't have a relationship <clears throat> with them. I, I've tried on and off for years up until I was thirty-seven. Okay, but it was so toxic, and I, I felt invalidated. So yeah, it's not a good feeling to carry. Mm-hmm. Release it if you can. If mm-hmm. you, can. it's not for everyone, though. No, I, I
0: understand that. I have another really uncomfortable question to ask because I think a lot of people might be worried about this if they've extreme if they've experienced sexual abuse. Yes. Did it impact your sex life after what happened with your dad and with that boy?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I became very hypersexual. So two things happen with sexual abuse. One is that you become very very sort of frigid if you like, you don't want anyone to touch you or be anywhere near you. The other thing that happens is you become very hypersexual because you're brain develops again it's the protector part well I'm just going to go and have sex with everybody I'm going to own my body I'm going to do what I want you see this a lot with young girls um, and we don't always know why they're hypersexual so we shouldn't judge them actually but if someone is taking that choice away from you I think partly what happens is I'm going to own it mm. I'm going to do this it's really not healthy by the way Okay, but I think that's I went through that phase and it took me a really long time And I've chosen celibacy for long periods of time as well to be able to sort of um, take away that addiction, if you like, because it becomes very much addictive in the sense that you learn, I'm in control here. Mm. You learn that this person's validating me here. Mm -hmm. You learn that you're getting that attention, that false sense of love and security here. None of that exists when you're having sex with whoever, whenever, by the way. But you feel like for a brief moment, That it is. And that can be very, very damaging because you end up realizing each time afterwards, oh, it wasn't that after all. You're chasing something. You're chasing something. So I chose celibacy for a period of time because I felt that if I could just take it all away Mm. and it's a bit like when you detox food, flush the system out, see how I am without it and then build again from there. So, wow. again, um, a lot of the psychosexual therapy is really, really good for really deeply understanding your own sexual motives. I can speak for myself and say that, and I know for a lot of girls that have been sexually abused, they have really high sex drives. And, again, I think it's part of the, it's the protector part coming forward. Wow. I will be in control of this. But they don't That's even recognise it's happened, and they're ashamed to say it. You know, if, you're, if, you, if you can't talk about sex um, in society as a woman... It's difficult anyway, but if you can't talk about sex in society, a woman, and you've been sexually abused, you carry so much shame. So it's really important to say that, that, yes, there are a lot of girls that will never want to have sex. They don't want to be touched. And boys. I keep saying girls, yeah. so it's just girls. It's boys as well. Because that's a misconception. Yes, isn't it is it? a misconception. I've never heard
0: the opposite side of you become hypersexual.
1: Yes, yeah, you do. A lot of girls do. And th- this is, I think, why they a lot of girls choose me, and boys. A lot of boys and girls choose me, men and women. Um Because they... I say boys and girls, by the way, because I refuse to think of myself as a middle-aged woman. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, they choose me because they know I'll get it. They can say it safely to me. They can see that she's done the work. She's not going to judge. Yeah. And even then, it takes a couple of sessions before they realise it, because I will ask the same questions that you did, and it enables them to be... Yes. And I'll say, by the way, I went into hypersexuality. That might not be your experience, but just so you know... It's fine for you to admit whatever it is that you're experiencing, Wow. and then they do. They go, "Oh yeah, actually," and they want to know why. Yeah. Because imagine being like that, and then, not. I mean, I didn't know why. I just thought, to be honest, I this thought is I me. was. Yeah, yeah. I thought I'm just a bit of a, mm. you know, because the word had been used with me. I'm going to say of it. People used to say I was a slag all the time. I was looking for love, validation, and safety, and I was trying to control sex because that had been the thing that had always been used against me.
0: Ella, I can't thank you enough for being so vulnerable on this podcast. I know that you're going to have helped so many people because people do not come forward and tell people about their trauma, let alone speak about it. And some people may even find this quite hard to listen to because it will resonate so much. But I really feel that you are you've given everyone so much hope and you've given everyone a solution and tools that they can use. And hopefully your diary will open up in the new year because I'm sure people will be flooding in. (laughs) But thank you so much for sharing because I know that can be really challenging and I can know that it's tough, but you're probably the most compassionate person I've ever met in my life. Even from this conversation, you know, you've really shown so much compassion with your answer and I'm really grateful for you coming on. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. And thank you for doing this, by the way, because it's a difficult one to interview as well because it's it's triggering even for for, like you say for people listening that haven't been through something like this it's a very difficult subject so I really appreciate you giving it the space my pleasure thank you
0: no thank you thank you so much